This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another wonderful episode of Jews You Should Know, this week featuring children's author and illustrator Anne Kofsky. Anne has been working in the field for decades, has published many, many of her own books. In fact, she averages a book per year, and you will probably recognize some of her titles and her ubiquitous illustrations that grace many of those titles, as well as greeting cards and lots of other works of art that she has produced over the years. Anne is also at the forefront of a fascinating movement in which she is combating a fairly modern trend of not printing pictures of women in very religious publications, newspapers, and magazines, and really trying to push back on that trend. Uh, it's certainly a, a subject of some controversy, and I think she makes a very compelling case for her viewpoint. And uh, although my goal here is not to be controversial or to weigh in on politically sensitive issues, this is a part of her passion and her work, and it is an important issue to discuss and hear critical perspectives about. So we bring that as well. And again, Anne has been an outstanding author illustrator in the children's book space, as well as now an editor in Bierman Publishing House, which is a very, very large publisher of Jewish-themed books, specifically in their Apple and Honey Press division. And I certainly learned a lot about that entire industry from Anne. A reminder again to subscribe wherever you are listening so that these episodes will come to you without you having to do anything at all. They'll just pop right in your podcast feed and please tell others to do so as well. And share right on iTunes or wherever else you might be listening. Please follow us on Instagram at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully. Twitter, Jews You Should Know, with a U instead of the Y-O-U. Facebook, Jews You Should Know. And at our website, JewsYouShouldKnow.com. And now to our conversation with children's author, illustrator, editor, publisher, Ann Kofsky. We are here with Ann Kofsky, a, an author, activist, and uh, how are you, Ann? I'm good. You left out illustrator. An illustrator. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know what it is? I'm so bad at illustrations myself that uh, it doesn't even, doesn't even cross my mind. <laughs> well, somebody has to do them. <laughs> sure. if, you ever, if you ever need a poorly rendered stick figure for any of your uh, books, let me know. Okay, I'm not, I'll, I'll add you to the list of poorly rendered disc figured people. It's kind of humiliating <laughs> when, uh, you know, when your child surpasses your art abilities at the age of three or four. Okay. Uh, yeah. It happened to me on math at around fourth grade with my kids. There you go. So we all have, <laughs> I guess, our limitations. Um, <laughs> and tell us a little bit about where you're from. What was your, uh, your, your upbringing? Well, I grew up in Lindbrook, Long Island. Um, my dad was the rabbi at Beth David in Lindbrook for many, many years, for pretty much my whole childhood. Um, and they sent me, which to 10 minutes away, to the Hebrew Academy in Nassau County, right. in Hempstead. And then I went to Stern College, 
And then I uh, made my way, I got married to a wonderful man, Markowski, and we lived in a couple of, a bunch of places before we landed back in West Hempstead, which is where I am now. So I am a partial returnee. Very nice. So what what was it like growing up in Lindbrook? Not exactly a, a very religiously active area, as far as I know. Right. So it was actually really interesting as a kid, because uh, I kind of had a schizophrenic existence, because the shul that my, my father was the rabbi was, um, you know, there was that moment in history where Orthodox rabbis went to be rabbis at conservative shuls, or shuls that didn't have mechitas, because I'm not sure it was officially a conservative shul. And so that he, that he was in that moment. So I lived on Shabbos, I went to a conservative shul. But we were Shomer Shabbos, and I went to Hank, which was a, obviously a day school in a Shomer Shabbos place. So uh, it was actually very broadening because I got to see, meet Jews from all sorts of, from not all backgrounds, but at least two of them. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I thought, I don't know if anybody would like to want, plan that as an ideal plan, but I think for me it was very good to see you know jews from all walks of life and and uh have a deeper understanding of we're all amisrael and that kind of stuff yeah it sounds like what we would probably call today like conservadox i yeah i mean it, we had the same davening so um you know shuls today the reformed shuls today don't have the same davening they changed uh some of the liturgy so i grew up with the same davening but people sat together yeah if you took that show and you put it in alabama they call it orthodox Right. At least at the time. Everything's changed now, however many years later. So It's a more, uh, more polarized, I would say, at this, at this point in time. Those, those kinds of synagogues mm-hmm. don't, don't exist very much anymore. What were some of your memories of being the child of a, of a long-time rabbi? I had it pretty, I didn't, you know, I know some children of rabbis feel a lot of scrutiny. I really didn't have that. Um, I think the only thing was that I had a bat mitzvah that a lot of people were looking at me. Then, then I felt under scrutiny, but on an everyday Shabbos and everyday life, I mean, I did get to crawl under the bima when I was little and sit on my father's lap on the bima. <laughs> I did have certain privileges, right. uh, but I just thought that was okay and completely normal. I do remember with my younger brother thinking we, must, we were very small, I don't remember how old we were, but just walking into the shul, saying, let's look at the Torahs and opening the Aron and running in fear as the alarm went off. <laughs> <laughs> they had an alarm already back then. So, so I do think I had a sense of owner. I felt like, well, my dad's on the stage there, so the shul is mine. You right. know, I, belo- I think that's what was different for me. But I didn't, I didn't have any of the rough challenges that I've heard other rabbinical children sometimes have. Right. And it's, again, interesting that you lived in Lindbrook, which is, you know, more of an out-of-town, I mean, it's in New York, yes. but kind of a, so not a major of, Jewish metropolitan experience. So that was part of my schizophrenia also. I felt like I was out of town on Shabbos and in town during the week. So it was like two different types of existences. Like if I wanted to make a play date on Shabbos, nobody. My brothers and I hung out and played board games and did puzzles. But during the week... I'm in the day school that's very vibrant and uh, lots and lots of Jewish kids. So, Did you feel was, jealous of the kids who lived in, let's say, West Hempstead or the five towns? I liked visiting. I liked visiting. When my friends in West Hempstead would have me for Shabba, was like, oh, this is cool. Yeah, but I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I guess I must have felt some sort of jealousy because here I am back in West Hempstead. Right. Or I just liked it. 
(laughs) (laughs) And felt it was a good place to raise my kids. Right. Yeah. It's a beautiful community there. Mm -hmm. Um, So fast forwarding a little bit, you, you said you, uh, you went to Stern college, Mm -hmm. college as they say, and, uh, you got married. What was your early, what were your early career aspirations? Well, my early career aspirations was that uh, I worked at Scholastic Books when I was right out of college um, in textbooks. And I remember when, while I was at Scholastic, we would always get um, books from other publishers and there would be a big grab pile like, to, so that we all knew what was going on in the field. And I remember picking up a copy of Tuesday uh, which is this amazing book about frogs flying through a neighborhood. There's no words. <laughs> the frogs come and they fly through the neighborhood and they watch television and then they go back home. It's illustrated in the most magnificent watercolor style. And I looked at that and I said, I want to switch sides. I don't want to be at a publisher. I want to be the author illustrator on the other side, creating cool frogs like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, After a year or two at Scholastic, I went to the School of Visual Arts for a year. uh, And then I printed a business card and started telling people I was an illustrator. And some of them believed me. And I started to to illustrate stuff. I started with a lot of greeting cards. um, And then uh, I was walking a trade show, uh, the stationary show. And I met Schulsinger Judaica people. And um, they looked at my portfolio and said, oh, this is very nice. We hope to use you someday. And I looked at that. I'm like, they're never going to call me. They like my work, but they're never going to call me unless I tell them what to use me for. Right. So I wrote a little book for them, like a little board book. And I said, how about this? And they said, okay, make that. And I did three books, three, three of those books, and then two activity books for them. And that kind of started me in the book world. Now, so just backing up a little bit, you said you started out at Scholastic, which I guess is a major publisher. Mm-hmm. Was it, was it your plan all along to get into publishing and writing and um, in general? Like, was, did you know you wanted to go into the, the book or magazine publishing world? Yes, I was very interested in media. Yes. Printed art, things that use words and pictures. What about yeah. that drew you? I was, if you looked at my notebooks from high school, the margins were filled with doodles. Uh, and art and, co- and communication with image has always been something that I find very compelling and very effective. And, uh, you know, it's like, why does anybody want to be anything? It's what they're good at. It's what they're compelled by. And it's, I think, how I can speak to people most effectively. And I, I, I want to do that. So was, was art really your, your first love or was it more yeah. the word? What, and were you always very artistic? Were you, were you? I was always very artistic and I was always a good writer in school. Art was something that I was very driven by. Like, I think writing came pretty naturally to me, but art was something that I was just good enough that it intrigued me and challenged me. And then I had to work hard to get further along in it, um, which I loved. Like, I loved that you could, that I was challenged and, and it drew me and it was, it was something that I could get better at and, and work on. So both of them, I like them both. They both, and they both work together beautifully. Like as a, as a high school kid, usually girls are not, how they are, but at that point, girls were not into comic books. I was a comic book geek. I collected DC comics and I had little stacks and I put them in plastic bags uh, because that comic book was like, you are communicating with words and pictures. That you have both. So I think I find that even more compelling than like seeing a Rembrandt, which is really gorgeous. Rembrandt's very good at what he does. 
but that's a picture. Whereas a comic book is words and pictures and how you have them relate and, and tell a story. What do you think about that is, is so powerful? In other words, you, know, you have purely visual art and then you have purely written word. What is it about the, the confluence of the two that is so compelling to you? Oh, gosh. Well, you're taking two very powerful tools and using them both, you know, two plus two equals seven, right? You just, because you have the picture on the page, the words become more powerful. You could have a picture that enhances the words. You could have a picture that contradicts the words. And then you have set up a dissonance. You're like, oh, uh, this person went for a walk in the park and had a great time. And then you show his face being miserable. And then you know that they are being sarcastic. And so you just can do more messages in different ways because you're using both. Um, getting back to where you were, so you, you basically decided one day that you are an illustrator. <laughs> it's not like law school. Because you know, law school, they hand you a diploma, you get a hat, and you know, da da da, you have a degree. Uh, to be an illustrator, I mean, you could go to a program and you graduate, but to be able to confidently say, I am an artist, is like a process. Because am I really an artist? Am I just dabbling? Yeah, I got one job, but does that count? <laughs> so it's, but so yes, I printed the business card and therefore I was an artist. Therefore you were, I, I print, I, therefore I am. Yes, exactly. So you started getting some gigs, illustrating or? Yes. So what, I, what I, kind of things were you working on early on? Was it, was it always in the Jewish world? Were you interested in I was, Jewish I world? was interested in everything because when you're starting out, you are hungry. So if I got a job, I took it. <laughs> uh, but it started in a lot, a lot of the ways in the book, in the book certainly, um, because I had an expertise in Judaism, because I was a Jewish Orthodox person who went to Stern, who went to Hank, I knew that subject matter very well. So a lot of my books are Jewish, most of them, 99% of them are. Uh, I also did a lot of greeting card work. Um, so while- Tell me about that. What is that? That's like uh, Hallmark cards? Like what, what, what yes. is, is that exactly? So Hallmark, I did a bunch of Hanukkah cards for, um, but I did a Christmas bag for Costco and I did a bunch of Santa Claus once in a while. Actually, I got a sock for my rabbi at the time. I don't even remember who I asked, so I apologize for that, but it was a long time ago. Yes, Santa Claus, no Jesus, in terms of <laughs> illustrating. That was the line. <laughs> Interesting, the Jesus yeah, line. Yeah, because cause Santa Claus was invented by Coca-Cola. Right. And Jesus was invented by somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, by God. Well, it depends, right. depends who you ask. Yes. <laughs> According to some, by, by nobody, you know, okay. Right. So that's where we, like, I had a conversation with Marov, and then personally, that's where I draw the line. I drew the line at the time. But now I'm mostly working on no, Jewish No pun intended. You know, you never, th you, you see these greeting cards, and you don't really think about, like, who actually makes them, like many things in the world. Right. Um, or like you the world itself. If yeah. you look around, like, the artists, you know, art images are everywhere. So I said greeting cards, and I said books, but, like, I designed some toys. I illustrated some puzzles. I did a placemat or two. I did... Uh, Oven mitts <laughs> wow. um, for uh, Right Light Judaica. There's some oven mitts with my illustrations on them. You know, uh, I designed a menorah. Everything needs to be, it doesn't just appear. When it comes to the green cards. In the Mishkan, they had to get Batsala on the case, you know? <laughs> when, when it comes to the greeting cards, 
did you think of the catchy phrases or they would give you like the poem or whatever and you say, okay, draw this? Um, I just created images and they, they created the words. Got it. Yeah, and, they, of, and I sometimes never even saw the catchy phrases until the card was printed. Like, we need a Hanukkah card. The art director at the greeting card company will call me up and say they need a Hanukkah card. I send them four sketches of different menorahs, four sketches of different dreidels, and then they say we like this one, and then I make the final art for it, uh, and then they print it on the card, and I find out much later what greeting they've chosen for it. <laughs> Usually it's Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> Very original. Very creative. <laughs> yes. You, you could be walking through, you ever walk through a store and say, hey, I, I made that. Absolutely. It's always fun. That's and I have thing. my like relatives call me and said, I bought a card and your name's on the back. Woo. Oh, they actually do put your name on there. Yes. That's yes. cool. Yeah. That's neat. My 15 minutes of fame. Do you ever get like a free batch of cards that you can then give out? Or? Always. I've got a whole like Tupperware giant container full of greeting cards. I never have to buy a greeting card. That's great. That's it comes my in perk. Handy That's my huge perk. <laughs> that's really neat so how did you then move from from cards to books as an illustrator is it the kind of thing where is the epitome like to write your own book and illustrate your own book or is it to collaborate with another with a major publishing house what's like the, the goal there I, I don't think that those those are completely first of all I did them simultaneously I usually would have about a book uh, be, since I started I had about a book a year um, and then I had greeting card work to go around it at the time. Now I'm not um, freelancing as much as I used to. Now I'm an editor at Behrman House Publishers. I'm an editor and art director there. So I switched back. I've come full circle. I started at Scholastic, then I went to go freelance, and now I'm back in-house as uh, on the other side of the table. So now I hire authors and illustrators for other books. Um, in terms of the epitome, there, the, there's really no uh, hierarchy like that. It's not, you can, um, I mean, if you want to measure in money, you want to measure in fame, you want to measure in, it's you, it's, if you get to do work that you're proud of is the right. success. Well, what, what was your dream? What was the ideal for you? I personally love books. I love children's picture books. It is definitely, I like working on them as an author. I like working on them as an illustrator. I like working on them as an editor. I like working on them as an art director. I just, and it, it's so meaningful, like a greeting card, is nice, but somebody gets it and usually they throw it out. A picture book is something you read over and over to your child, they become beloved, they stay on the shelf, they get passed it down to grandchildren if you really liked it, right. um, or they get so read so many times that they get in the garbage eventually, but they have uh, staying power and they tell a story. A greeting card is a pretty picture. A picture book tells a story and a story Everything's made of stories. We're all made of stories, right? The Torah, go look at Bracious. It's story, 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 story. That's how we connect to the next generation. They don't remember. Well, they do remember, go wash your hands, go do this, go do these mitzvahs. But if you connect it and hook it to a story, that's the meaning. Yeah. What were some of the early projects that you got to work on once you sort of became an actual illustrator, once you started getting real gigs, you said you've been doing a book a year, which is quite a lot, you know. You're, yes, I'm proud of that. You've been, been working in the field for a while. So what were some of the things that you worked on? Uh, it depends how, like, I, I think the very first project was those little Schulzinger books I told you about, which was, one was, uh, I can, a little board book, I can, 
I can light the candles. I can make kiddish. I can light a menorah. I can spin a dreidel. That's the whole book. <laughs> I can, I can, I can go through all the holidays and done. Um, so those were the early, early books. In the summers, I would work at my kids' camp so that we would barter camp for work. A lot of people do that. And I was the, uh, a lifeguard. Nothing to do with writing or illustrating. But that, I did that for 10 summers. I was a lifeguard. Got a really good tan every summer. Oh. And, and that inspired uh, me writing a book called Noah's Swimathon. So that was one of the first books that really was a picture book classically, not like a board book or not like a textbook. Or This was a picture book with a story. The boy called Noah who was scared to swim. And um, he ends up overcoming his fear of swimming uh, to, because he wants to be in the camp swimathon. So it's a book about Sadaka and being brave. And because I was a lifeguard for 10 years, I knew the pool. <laughs> they always say, write what you know. Um, so that was a very significant book for me because it was my first picture book. That was a story, 32 pages, and that kind of format. Now, what's the process? In other words, in these situations, you, you, you were not writing the books, right? So No, that I did write the book. You wrote the, these, these that you described, you actually yes. wrote the, the content yes. as well. Right. The first, I really started writing quite a lot because I started with those little board books and that worked. So I did it again <laughs> and I did it again and I did it again. So I did write and illustrate many, many books. Um, but the, so the process is you write the story, you send it to the publisher. Usually they reject it. Occasionally they accept it. And uh, if they do, um, I'm the author illustrator. So they're usually contacting me with some kind of, oh, we see that you illustrate. We'll have you illustrate this as well. Interesting. So you don't come in as a package deal saying, here's a completed work. With no, they, because the publisher has a lot of feedback for you. They have, oh, this is a great story. Now here are 120 changes. You know, we love it, but change everything. <laughs> Interesting. So, so that's definitely part of the process. And that happens in the art stage as well. Oh, we really like how you drew Noah, but can you make him a redhead and add freckles and talk to us about how you're going to do his elbow joints? I mean, there's so many visual decisions to make. Interesting. So do you ever start the other way and come with an illustration concept? Because I would imagine that if so much of the power of the, of the book is the illustration, how does the publisher really even envision what you have in mind I mean, a story could just be, you know, a pretty, like, for example, you said, you know, I can light the menorah, I can make kiddish. Well, I mean, that's not a very riveting plot. So if I, you, know, you would come just to the publisher and say, this is my, this is my vision for a book. I can do this. I can do this. Done. I mean, right. So isn't the illustration a big part of that? And wouldn't they have to know that you're qualified to do that or that, or believe in your iteration of the visualization in order to task you with the full project? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Normally what would happen is that I would show them my portfolio samples. So I could say, yes, this is the story, and I plan to use this artistic style to illustrate it. However, and that's how it often works. I would say 99% of books, story is written, art happens later, based on portfolio samples. But my most recent book called uh, Creation Colors, which retells the story of Bracious, through color and through paper cuts. So like uh, we're telling the story of Bracious, we say on day one, God, Hashem created black and white. On day two, God created blue. 
on day three, God created green. Okay, so it actually works. And I made it work. For that book, I wrote up the story and I sent it to an editor that I work with, who I actually happened to sit share an office with because she's at Berman House too. I said, what do you think? And she said, uh, there's nothing there. And I had in my head gorgeous art, amazing art, but she couldn't see it because it, wasn't, it didn't exist yet. And I said, you know what? I don't care. I am making this art. And if she doesn't take it, I'll donate it to a show. And I made seven days of creation and I showed her the art and she said, oh, this is a book. And now it's a book. Oh. <laughs> and the art is in here. Oh, we're doing a whole callback, a full circle. The art is now hanging in the Hebrew Academy in Nassau County Minion Room. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. So it's really nice that I, it gets to have lives in different places. Tell me a little bit about how your career evolved um, from doing these, these different books. Was there a diversity of things happening? Did you, did you venture into different types of art? Did you ever collaborate with different people and so forth? Oh, well, there's a lot. You know, every project has its own story. So the Noah Swimathon, I mean, I could talk to you artistically. Like the Noah Swimathon picture book, I decided to just, uh, my style for painting involves color paint with black outline and color pencil. When I got to Noah Swimathon, I said, you know what, let's try having less of our cartoony look and drop the black outline. When I did the Creation Colors book, um, artistically, I always did, my artistic style basically had been split. I guess schizophrenia is like a, a feature of my personality. <laughs> but, uh, Sounds like it has so, its early, early so, origins. So for my, for my picture books and my book uh, illustration, I'd most often been used to painting. For my greeting card work, I had most often used paper cuts. For creation colors, I put them together. So there's paper cuts laid over paintings. Wow. So, you know, so artistically, you always have to be pushing yourself and trying new things. Otherwise, one, you're going to get bored. You're going to get, you yourself will get bored. And two, you become a hack because you just do the same thing over and over and over. The nature of a creative career is continual innovation. Uh, so if you look at each book of mine, you're like, oh, in that one, she did that. And in this one, she did this. And, the, you know, that kind of thing. How do you know, like, how do you learn all these different techniques? I mean, each one of these are different, no? Do you have to, do you have to train yourself in the different techniques? Or once you're good at one, you're kind of decent in all the others? Um, no, everything, but that's part of being innovative is learning. You know, I want to try that. I wonder what glue you need. You know, if I want to put these paper cuts on top of the paintings, how am I going to get it to stick? I got to find that out. So I don't know that because I'm an artist. I have to go look and, you know, start Googling decoupage techniques and, uh, you know, what's archival glue that will last and not fall apart. And you, you gotta, you gotta learn. So the first one, you make mistakes. And the second one, you still make mistakes. And then you gradually get uh, a feel for how you approach something, just like anything else. I think that's true of any field, right? Yeah. You know, you learn, the field evolves, you've left to keep learning and you evolve and you keep learning. At some point, it sounds like you transitioned, as you said, from, I guess, producing your own materials or freelancing to being uh, an in-house manager, professional, an organizational person. Right. How, how did that happen? Why did you, do, why did you make that choice? Was it just for stability? Um, because it, it's, very diff it's very different managing people and sort of directing others as opposed yes. to the creative person yourself. Yes, it's a different, certainly a different role. Um, uh, the reason I switched is I think like a, a lot of women 
uh, my kids got big. <laughs> and they were, you know, when I freelance was amazing for, for being at home because I was home. I'm in a babysitter so that I could actually paint without them sticking their hands in the stuff. But, you know, I made my own hours and I could drive carpool whenever I needed to. And I was there to make dinner and I was there when they came home or I was there, whatever. But then they grew. And my youngest uh, all of a sudden was going until four o'clock. And then in the yeshiva, you know, they get to seventh grade and they go all the way to forever o'clock. <laughs> so um, I, I just wanted more. And um, I had the time to do that. And there's also a lot of value into switching to be a collaborator because now I get to work with other people, see, first of all, it's a lot less lonely. Um, but you learn, like, I love working with artists and talking to them about how we're going to hash out a book because, uh, and then my own art becomes better because I'm like, oh, look what they did. I'm stealing that. I mean, I'm being inspired by that next time. That was me joking. But yes, we all like learn from one another. And um, so I'm really excited to switch sides and be a collaborator. And because I was a freelancer for all those years, now I know how to work with freelancers because I can relate to them and say, okay, this is what we're doing. You got to fix the head and do the nose and move that around and you have to flop your composition and they're like, Oh yeah, thanks. You know, cause they, cause I, I can get in their heads because I did it too. And I do it. Or do you think that you bring unique sensitivities as well to the table? In other words, I would imagine part of the tension of a freelancer and a, a publisher would be that the freelancer has certain you know, creativity and, and, and a vision. And then it's constantly being modified and, and, you know, changed by whoever is paying them <laughs> to do it. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and that could probably be a, a difficult a pill to swallow for, for creative people. Well, do, you, do you bring that sensitivity to the table and how would you navigate that? No, I mean, absolutely. And although I think people who are not ever freelancers have that sensitivity too. When you, if you work with professionals, they, first of all, they know changes are coming. Nobody is perfect the first time. You know, we work uh, at Behrman House. I've worked with Eric Kimmel and David Adler and Barbara Diamond Golden. And if you know picture books, those are the top Jewish writers. They're also not perfect the first time. I don't think they'll mind me revealing that. We have edits for them. They do, and they're really good at what they do. But you always need an objective eye and you need somebody else who can uh, help you get to the strongest uh, way that it could be. But sure, I think if, they're, if you're working with a professional and a creative person, they also wanna do their best work. So if you say, change their hair to red, and you don't explain yourself, they're like, what the heck? Why do I have to change the hair to red? But if you say, please change their hair to red, because the kid is gonna be in the forest for the whole book, and red contrasts with green really well, and we think that it will help highlight the kid, they'll be like, oh, thanks. Now my pictures just got that much better because you gave me this tip that I didn't see because I've been in there drawing his eyelashes and I couldn't see the forest for the trees. So that's like what an editor does a lot. We're, the far, we're looking from the helicopter up here and saying, hey, I see you missed that uh, corner. And they're like, oh, I didn't realize that because I was over there in the other corner. So it's a collaboration. It really is a true collaboration. What does Beerman House uh, principally work on? Beerman House is, I believe, the oldest Jewish publisher in the United States. It's been here, you know, 100, I think that we're celebrating our centennial soon, which is kind of remarkable. Um, and 
They primarily provide Jewish educational books to Hebrew schools, um, congregational schools, I think they call them now. Uh, but, you know, for conservative and reform. And they also now have an imprint called Apples and Honey Press, where they do Jewish children's books, which is a great name, right? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yes. So Apples and Honey Press has, you know, Yom Kippur Shortstop from David Adler and uh, Big Sam from Eric Kimmel and Judah Maccabee Goes to the Doctor by me. And um, we've, it's, it's really for such a young imprint. It's like five years old. We've, it's got an amazing, I'm very, very proud to be a part of it. We really built something really cool. That's great. A lot of those books cross over. Picture books especially, you know, Shabbos is Shabbos when you're talking to a three-year-old. You know, we like candles, we eat challah and we bless the kids Friday night. And that crosses reform conservative Orthodox. Right. Really, really nice. Right. What's being emphasized nowadays in the, as you said, the congregational school world, these are, I guess, textbooks for them. Uh, educational materials, sometimes textbooks, sometimes a booklet, sometimes a poster, sometimes um, just anything that has content that an educator in that environment would find useful. Yeah, it's interesting because I would imagine, I guess, then you have somewhat of a bird's eye view on that demographic in that world. It's a much maligned arena. And, you know, I work with college students in my, my day job, so to speak. And mm-hmm. I have to acknowledge that many, if not most of them, come with less than favorable judgments about their Hebrew school experiences. So I'm curious what... First of all, I think if you survey day school students, you would get a lot of that as well. That could be. <laughs> there's Growing up is hard. So there's a lot of people that don't enjoy the process at some point or the other. Fair enough. Um, I think there's something particularly uh, hellish <laughs> about Hebrew school for many people. You know, I think what's hard about Hebrew school is that they have to give up soccer for it. Right. I think they're competing with soccer. When you send your kid to a day school, that's their world, that's their environment, and they don't see their friends doing other fun things while they are in Chumash. But when you go to a Hebrew school, your friends are going to soccer or dance or having other opportunities and you're stuck going to another school? That's really hard. That's not fair. Why do they get to go play baseball and I have to go to a second school? So I think that's like the core issue that all the Hebrew schools have to contend with. And I noticed that a lot of the religious schools are working very hard um, about how to make Hebrew school engaging and fun and connection, connecting to the kids. They're, they're not just sitting there anymore. They're using the books as a, as a jumping off point to have out-of-the-seat activities and group work and camp-like experiences in the Hebrew schools. I don't know, they'll bake something or they'll all get together and do a, a soup kitchen project. So they're, they're try- and, they're, and they'll use the content within as a part of that. So everybody wants to make this work is what I've noticed. And right. I, well, I was going to ask you then from your vantage point, what are you seeing? Are there innovations that you're seeing in that world and what kind of materials are being produced to help create a more informal educational feel and, and a more engaging connection? Yeah. So the Behrman house school materials now all have what we call out of the seat activities. It's not a textbook saying, once upon a time, the Jews were kicked out of this country and now we have a holiday. It's everybody get out of your seat. Uh, there's a lot of project-based learning ideas where the kids think about what they want to learn and then they have to go research based on what questions they have. 
Uh, so there's a lot of that I see. Um, there's a lot of mindfulness activities that we're now putting into our books. So, you know, not just everybody make a blessing and eat an apple. It's hold the apple in front of you. Look at it. Smell it. Now say the blessing. You know, so there's mindfulness moments and stuff like that are now incorporated into a lot of materials as, uh, materials as well. Um, there's also a lot of trends towards, yes, they're teaching holidays and um, history and Chomesh, but they're also teaching about kindness. Um, Beerman House just did a whole curriculum called Let's Discover Kindness, which is all about how to teach kindness ideas and basically chesed. It's a, it's a program about chesed uh, for kids in second grade. You know, how can we be kind to ourselves? How can we be kind to our friends? How can we be kind to our teachers? And all those types of activity about chesed. Um, I'm trying to think what other trends there are. Yeah, the same thing, building character. Uh, so there's gonna, we're working on a, on a program now about character traits. Let's talk about gvura. How can I be uh, brave and strong? And what Jewish heroes can I look to to be inspired about bravery and strength? Like, let's talk about Esther in, in the, through the lens of character. What did she have that let her go into Ahasuerus' throne room and risk her life? Like, how did she build that within herself? What can I learn from that personally? So I think that it's, it's really focusing on um, character and midot. Is, is a huge trend because people aren't nice in our world right now. Everybody's mad at each other. So there's a desire to teach our kids differently. How is all of this changing in today's digital world? You know, print media, you're constantly hearing the, you know, the, the death knells of print media. How is, how is this all impacting your work? You know, both, both as an individual creator, mm -hmm. illustrator, author, et cetera, and as a as an editor, as a uh, you know, on the management side of this profession. So I think what's changing is that when we're writing activities for these textbooks, we all know kids have a phone in their pocket, or can get one, or that certainly the teacher does. So that's a great challenge because we're competing with it, but it's also a great opportunity. So for example, in um, uh, we just did a textbook called Israel. It's complicated which is really, if you're teaching college kids on campus, you know how important that is. Um, so in that uh, last chapter of Israel, it's complicated. We have this great, you know, tourist, basically the last chapter of the book is, these are all the cool things you can see in Israel, which there are many. And what we did is we have a photo, let's say of Masada, and we printed a QR code. So the kid can see the picture of Masada, do whatever activity we have on the page, pull out their phone and cl click on the QR code, which takes them to Masada's website. And then we can ask them questions in the book that they have to find on Masada's website. So that's tremendous opportunity because they could get lost on Masada's website and learn way more than we could put in a 72 page book. And we could have 10 QR codes on a page, which we, one, two, three, I think we did about five. And then you turn the page and there's five more. So it's opportunity and it's challenge. Um, Behrman House is doing a lot of digital work. They've got uh, games, digital game. like let's say for their Hebrew, they're teaching the kids Hebrew, then they have games digitally that you can go practice your Hebrew. And you can record yourself saying the words and then the teacher gets an email with the recording so they know where they're doing. You know, so there's like so many opportunities. 
but they are still requesting the print materials in the schools and so yes forth. yes burn house is uh healthy and vibrant people people want um they don't necessarily want books because sometimes they want to be so fun that they don't want to hand the kids a book. They're, uh-huh. they're concerned that maybe a book will make them feel like it's school. But if we break it into folders that are stapled together, <laughs> then suddenly it's not a book. And then they can like hand it out and it's disposable in a way that <laughs> book isn't. And they still, and they get to bring it home and they get to write in it without worrying. So, and then that content is delivered in just a different way. So right. I think we're all just, figuring out different content delivery, but Judaism is still something people like and they want to teach it and they want to pass it to their kids in a way that's engaging. Definitely heartening to hear. Mm -hmm. I want to just touch on another facet of what you do. And, you know, this is a more delicate topic, but um, you're involved in, I believe, an online initiative to highlight uh, women in social media. as perhaps a reaction to a, a let's say a, a more conservative trend within some segments of the religious community mm-hmm. that are either obscuring or uh, removing images of women from from popular media popular publications um, I guess in the name of modesty so to speak um, and obviously it's a controversial subject with uh, a lot of emotional uh, feelings about it on, on different sides of the issue and without getting too uh, political or too controversial, so to speak, but just tell me a little bit about what, what you're doing and kind of what you're passionate about and, and really, I guess more in the positive sense, what you're promoting um, to highlight what you believe is important. Thank you. Okay. So um, yes, I am very passionate. Look, we just spent, uh, how long have we been talking? 30 minutes, 40 minutes so far, uh, about the power of image and um, how it is so valuable to communicate with image and words to send our, a message, to tell a story, to advertise, whatever it is that message that you're trying to communicate, pa- image and words working together are, are an incredible, uh, valuable tool. So because one of the things that I want to communicate to my daughter and to my sons and I think other Jewish women want to communicate to their daughters and their sons, is a sense of what true tzniyas is, is a sense of what role models are, uh, you know, women to look up to. Um, sometimes I want to communicate by my book. <laughs> That's what I want to do sometimes. Sometimes a real estate agent who is female wants to get business. Um, sometimes there's a female speaker who wants to say, hey, there's a, I'm speaking about a Dvar Torah at this shul. And all of those messages some very important, like showing our daughters what Shrutsnias look like. Some more uh, Parnassa related, like please, please hire me to sell your house, are more effectively communicated with image. And without the, so that's the positive end. If we want to really teach our daughters, sons, and people what true Judaism looks like, which we do, because otherwise all they get to see is anorexic newscasters and superheroes who have lots of muscles and high heels for some reason. <laughs> if we want to show what real Tzniyas is and what real women uh, we look up to, and if we want to show what we value, pictures is a tremendous way to do it. To just eliminate them in the name of Tzniyas, first of all, 
I, I, I question the premise because Sarah Schneera and uh, Rebetzin Feinstein and Rebetzin Kamenetsky were all quite sneeous and appeared in pictures. Sure. And if you go to my website that I'm the webmaster for called fromwomenhavefaces.com, you can see lots of photos of them because nobody did this until 1999 or something. This is a new idea, it is a new concept, and I think it wasn't thought through. When we take out pictures of women, we are throwing the baby and many other things out with the bathwater. And I think the unintended consequences were not thought through. What are you doing in your social media campaign to reverse that? Well, I'm part of a, there's a lot of different things we're doing. Um, I'm part of a larger group of women. There's a Facebook group called Put the Women Back In from Media, which is a long title, but that's what it is on Facebook. And I'm not the moderator of that, uh, but I am a part of it. And there's about 800 women in there right now, uh, all Shabbat Shabbos from, and many, many Yeshiva Shkharedi people in there as well, which people don't realize. There are a lot of Yeshiva Shkharedi people who don't like this either. And together we've written hundreds of letters. We've basically had an extended letter writing campaign and just general advocacy saying, hi, I don't know if you realize, but when you show two men at the Shabbos table without the bomb, you're communicating that women don't matter and don't exist. And that is a troubling message. Um, so on there, it's, a, it's, a, it's just an advocacy letter writing campaign. I'm also the webmaster of that website, which I just mentioned a minute ago. And in that capacity, that's an educational website. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who have a misunderstanding that I've spoken to who think it's halacha or who think it's minhag or who think it's always been this way in Haredi communities. This is the way life has always been. So the website is mostly educational, showing the pictures from the Jewish Observer, which is an Aguda publication until the mid-90s that had women on the cover even, showing photos of these great Rebbitsons so they don't disappear. You know, um, otherwise we're going to lose them. It's very sad to me. Are you hopeful? I am hopeful in the long term because I have Emuna, and that's how I'm hopeful in the long term. I have no evidence to be hopeful, but my Emuna says that Hashem will make sure that our true tradition is, is maintained and that the incorrect traditions will fall away. You know, it was invented after the iPod. So anything invented after the iPod has to prove that it's a good idea. And the pushback, and I actually do, I'm starting to have hope because I'm not alone. 800 women being upset is significant. I, I don't think a practice can continue that upsets this many people. What responses do you get from publishers when you reach out about the editor, I don't want to name any names, but I've spoken to editors of several publications and none of them like it. The female editors or the male editors? I've spoken to male editors. Many of, the, many of the main editors of some of these publications are actually female. Yes, they are. Uh, but I have spoken to, I, I'm trying to figure out how to say this without, none of them that I have spoken to, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to think how to say it without identifying them because they didn't say I could say their words publicly. The ones that I have spoken to are not happy about it. They feel like they have to do it for business concerns. Correct. 
Yeah. That's what, that's what I've heard before, that there's a, a growing conservatism, let's call it, that is driving a, a commercial choice, you know. And, Unfortunately, again, even when you make that decision, you're not thinking it through because you're making what you, th- first of all, I'm not sure how carefully the data has been recorded and how many people just don't care, Right. how many people would stop getting the publication, how people would now start buying the publication if you just put the women back in. So you, I'm not sure what their data is or what, or they're basing it on a gut feeling or if they're basing it on fear. Secondly, so if Parnassa is what we care about in this issue, then that needs to be evaluated from all sides. But you've just hit a bunch of women who now can't make Parnassa because they can't advertise their business properly. Right. So I find it very upsetting. I find it concerning that there seems to be a lot of fear around this issue, that people can't choose to do what they think is right without fear of consequences. Because we should not make our ethical choices based on terror. Right. In closing, uh, and switching back to your, your, your main job, <laughs> what's on the horizon for you? What's unaccomplished yet for you? Do you have any exciting book ideas that you still want to work on in terms of your own? Do you see any major projects on the editing side coming down the pike that are energizing you? What, what are you up to next? What, and, I'm exci- what am I excited about next? Yeah. Well, I am very excited. Um, my own book that I'm working on with my editor right now is called Kayla and Kugel's Hanukkah, <laughs> tentatively titled. Um, so I have two books called, well, the first, the first one is called Kayla and Kugel, which is about a girl and her dog uh, getting ready for Shabbat or Shabbos, depending who we're talking to. Um, uh, the second book is called uh, Kayla and Kugel's Almost Perfect Pesach because Kugel, the dog, steals the Afikoman, uh, <laughs> and chaos ensues. And now we're doing a Hanukkah one. So what's exciting about that is I've got a series here. We've got a character that uh, people are connecting to. And, you know, when I grew up, it was Sammy the Spider making, making holidays. And now for our whole other generation of kids, I think there's going to be Kayla and Kugel. So that's kind of cool. That's great. That's really great. So this is really on the freelance side, so to speak. That's on my other hat, yeah. I wear lots of hats for lots of reasons. Now, because you're a publisher as well, or working for a publisher, do you have more ready access to just kind of green light your own projects, or do you publish through Oh, I wish. (laughs) I have access in that I'm in the office with my friend Dina, who's the uh, executive editor, and if I send her something, she is committed to reading it. However, I assure you, she has had no problem rejecting me over and over and over. I think I've got a five to one ratio. I'm not exaggerating, but I think that that's very common. I don't think I'm bad at this. I think it's really, really hard to write a successful, effective book for children. It's deceptively simple. You think it's so easy. It's only 32 pages. It's got a sentence on a page. But if you only have 32 pages and five words on a page, every word has to be perfect because that's all you got. So though you have to choose every word so carefully and every brushstroke so carefully to really communicate that image. So I, yes, I get rejected all the time. I'm very proud of it because that's the process. That's the way it works. Well, it's definitely an inspiring thought yeah, for <laughs> anyone who's trying to create anything or accomplish anything big that mm-hmm. that's an inherent part of the process, not a sidebar or a, an unfortunate, you know, distraction, but that really is the process itself. And, if you're not getting rejected, you're not getting... If you're not getting rejected, you're not trying. If they, they took you on the first time, 
something's wrong. <laughs> Why did they think you were so perfect the very first time you wrote something? Maybe you're a prodigy, but I doubt it. Reminds me of Groucho Marx, you know, any club that wants me as a member, I don't want to be a part of. <laughs> right. Well, that's not true, though. You definitely want to get published. <laughs> you want to get published, but eventually but you, got, you want to prove that it's really of, of value. Genuine. You're, yeah. And, it's, and again, Dina accepted, uh, I'm very grateful, and she is excited also about Kayla and Kogel Hanukkah. She just sent me pages of edits. I got to fix this. I got to take that. I got to work on the balance between the story of Hanukkah and the story of Kayla and Google. And the fact, there's plenty to do. I got work to do. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to seeing it. It's going to be great. We'll look forward to seeing it. Tell us, uh, Anne, in closing, where people can find your work. Where can they want to you know, buy some of these oh, books? Or yes. So let's do all the – everybody ready? Here comes all the websites and, the, and Instagram stuff. Okay. You can follow me on Instagram at Jewish Art by Anne. You can find my website at annkoski.com, two Fs, one S. You can find Beerman House books at beermanhouse.com, B-E-H-R-M-A-N house.com. You can find Beerman House's picture books at www.applesandhoneypress.com. And finally, from womenhavefaces.com, if you want to see pictures of Rebetzin Feinstein, Rebetzin Kamenetsky, and other amazing women, Plus, I got a page of jokes. So, <laughs> okay, so, well, if nothing else brings them, it'll be the jokes. That's, there you go. Yeah, you got to have All a right. sense of humor, even, even around a serious and sensitive topic. So. Absolutely. I, that's how, we're Jewish, right? That's how we, we, uh, that's how we affect change, through humor. There we go. Jankowski, <laughs> author, illustrator, activist. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you. This has really been an honor. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.